We also consider this evening the truths we find in our catechism, question 76. We continue our study of the Lord's Supper. The question 70... <coughs> question 76 is asking us, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? And the answer given us, it means, and then two answers are given us here, <coughs> It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. <coughs> and so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. <coughs> so far, the, the, uh, the catechism. Uh, dear congregation, you'll remember last week that we considered the fact that the Lord's Supper is given to us, this time, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper is given to us as another picture, alongside of baptism, of God's saving grace and mercy to us. Baptism under the picture of a cleansing with water and the Lord's Supper under the picture of a meal. You remember at that time, dear friends, that we said that God comes to us with this overture of mercy. He comes to us with this covenant. Remember Isaac and Abimelech. Remember Abimelech came to Isaac with this covenant and asked, Abimelech, or asked Isaac, let's enter into this covenant together. And now in the same way, we spoke of that last week that God comes to us with this covenant. You might say he, he spreads the table before us. And he comes with this covenant. And now the catechism is, is switching from what God has done in this overture, in this covenant that he sets before us, to now our response to it. How do we now appropriate that covenant? How do we, as it were, sign our name to that covenant? How do we agree to it? Well, we sit down at the table with God. That's what the question is asking us. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? In other words, how do we now, with this covenant that God has brought to us, how do we take hold of it? Now, of course, every Sunday school catechism child has learned from their youngest days, right, that this is what faith does. That faith takes hold of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is merely, I shouldn't say merely, the Lord's Supper is a picture of faith taking hold of Christ. And that's why the answer he gives us, to accept with a believing heart and to receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit. So as I thought about this question, congregation, I thought then we need a sermon on faith. Now, we already had a sermon in the Catechism on Faith back in question 21. We had a, what is true faith? But now another sermon on faith. Because faith is what reaches forth and takes hold of Christ. And faith is now given us here in this picture of a meal. And immediately I thought about this story of this Canaanite woman. Because Jesus explicitly says to her, your faith is great. 
So tonight, dear congregation, I would like to sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ as he relates this story to us of this Canaanite woman. And we ask ourselves, now what was it that made this woman's faith great? And how can we as Christians have that kind of faith, that kind of faith, that we take hold of Christ and that we can have a great faith? So let's look at this story then. We start by considering where Jesus went. Where Jesus went. And we are told in the beginning that Jesus went away from there, which is where he was, with the Jews. And he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now we're not told anything else about why Jesus did this. Again, in the commentators that I studied on this chapter, some would say he did it for rest, to get away from the arguments of the Jewish people. Now there could be some truth into that. But you know, I thought about this verse, congregation, in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And so I believe that there was a divine necessity on the Lord Jesus Christ to leave the region, the area around Jerusalem, and to go into this non-Israelite, this Gentile region. Why? Because there was their congregation a woman, an elect woman. She was, she, she was under the seal of God's election, if I can put it that way. And now Jesus will go and seek her out. She was a lost sheep of the house, not of the house of Israel, but a lost sheep all the same. Now again, the, the, the verse doesn't explicitly say that. But that verse came to my mind. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And could that be the reason why Jesus steps out of Jeru uh, Jewish land, if I could put it that way, and goes into Gentile land? I move to my second point. Because while Jesus is there, here comes this woman, this Canaanite woman, and she's crying out for Jesus. My friends, did you catch that? A Canaanite woman. This is a woman who would have been under God's curse. This was one of those women who the Israelites were instructed to wipe out when they entered the land many, many years prior. A Canaanite woman. She comes out and she cries out in great distress about her daughter being demon-possessed. What an anguish must have been in the heart of this woman. Mothers, do you remember taking your child to the hospital at any time, if you, if you have? Maybe you never have, but perhaps you have. You can think about the anguish, right, the distress, even for something minor. You can, it's a, it's a feeling uh, that mothers, uh, don't forget, fathers too, know that distress. And here comes this woman crying out to God, crying out for Christ, crying out to Jesus to have her daughter healed. And we notice Jesus' response because this is the great mystery of this account that we have, that in verse 23, how does Jesus respond? In verse 23, he ignores her. That's not what we expected. But he did not answer her a word. Congregation, where's the loving Jesus with his hands extended, calling sinners, calling the needy ones to come to him? Come unto me, he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden. 
But on this woman, he turns his back. And he keeps going. He ignores her. And yet there's something here, again, not said explicitly in this story, but from the rest of the scripture. And again, that verse is still in my mind. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And so, congregation, I believe that even as Jesus turns his back on this woman, that with one hand, he draws her to himself. That's contradictory, isn't it? Because it says, with one hand, he pushes her away. But sovereignly, by his own irresistible call, he's drawing that woman to himself. There's a mystery there. There's a mystery there. But Jesus turns his back on this woman, even as by the power of his spirit, he works in that woman's heart this true saving faith that draws her to himself. With one hand, he pushes her away. With another hand, he draws her to himself. First, Jesus ignores. Then we have the response of the disciples, also in verse 23. Verse 23, the disciples, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. In other words, the disciples are irritated by this. It it appears, congregation, from the account we have here, that that Jesus, or that the disciples wanted Jesus to actually uh, give this woman what she was asking for. That they wanted Jesus to give this woman what she was requesting. Give her what she wants and send her on her way. The reason for that is in verse 24, because Jesus answers and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It seems to imply, again, it's not explicit, but it does seem to imply that Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give her what she wants because I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But at any rate, we have the, the, the response of the disciples. And isn't it odd here, my friends, that in one sense, the disciples seem more compassionate here than Jesus himself. Jesus has turned his back on her. The disciples, granted they're irritated by this woman, but at least they say, Lord, give her what she wants and send her on her way so we can be done with her. As she's shouting and crying out after us, this is, this is embarrassing. This is irritating. Again, it seems that disciples even have a, a more compassion on this poor woman than Jesus himself does. Well, then we have Jesus in verse 24. He makes a statement about his mission. Jesus says to his disciples, again responding to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, my mission is to come for the Jewish people. I have nothing to say to the Gentiles. Now this takes us even deeper into the mystery because that is flatly contradicted by other statements that Jesus made. And I put those on the outline for you there. In the same book, in Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Jesus clearly speaking to the Jewish people, saying God's going to take away the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to Gentile people who will actually appreciate it and embrace it and welcome it. Chapter 24 and verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus does have a ministry to Gentile people. So what what of this statement then? 
this is difficult to understand. Why does Jesus say to his disciples, I am only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? My friends, is it possible that Jesus here in his wisdom is trying to teach the disciples something? In fact, I wonder, as I read this and as I studied this account, whether this whole story was actually to teach the disciples something. And that Jesus here makes a contradictory statement to force into their minds this truth. Who is a lost sheep? Again, you can, you can imagine this story. It appears that by this time this woman has caught up with Jesus because in the next verses she falls at his feet. This woman has caught up. And you wonder if in the disciples' mind they're thinking, who are the lost sheep that Jesus came to save? Is it those proud Pharisees that we just left behind? That we were just disputing with? Again, you can read about that in the, in the, in the previous part of that chapter, right? Where Jesus is talking and arguing with the Pharisees. Are those the lost sheep of the house of Israel that you came to save? Or is it this poor woman in distress, crying out for help, with no claim on, God's, on Jesus' mercy? Again, you almost wonder if there was some beard scratching there, right? Some, some thinking on the part of the disciples. This, this doesn't seem to add up. That Jesus claims he's only coming for the Jewish people, but if ever there was a lost sheep, certainly it must be this poor woman. And we know that later in the New Testament, when there was greater light shown on these truths, that, the, that it was the Apostle Paul who said that the children of Abraham are not those biologically descended from Abraham, but those who have the faith of Abraham. The same apostle said that the true circumcised people are not those with the circumcision done by hands, but the circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit of God. And again, I wonder if already Jesus is beginning to crack open that door a little. Who is a lost sheep? The fourth thing Jesus does is he explains his mission to this woman. First, he explains it to his disciples in these words when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now in verse 26, this woman finally catches up to them. She falls at his feet. Lord, help me. And in verse 26, Jesus says to her these almost unbelievable words. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, my friends, you almost, you almost have to stand up in indignation and say, Jesus, haven't you taken this far enough? How much farther will you, will you take this? Will you, will, you, will, you, will you lead this woman? What are you trying to do to her? If you're not going to help her, could you not at least dismiss her politely? I consider it hard this week. The word insult because it, it violates everything within me, my friends, to say that Jesus insulted this woman. But my friends, the text is as it is. And Jesus says, it is not good to take the children's bread, in other words, the blessing I brought for the Jewish people, and to throw that to Gentile dogs like you. Now, 
Some of you will know that the dogs here referenced is, is not the big, mean dogs that, ro that roamed the city streets that would actually even bite and hurt people. These are the little, little pet dogs, right? The lap dogs of the, of the day. But still, a dog is a dog. And Jesus called this woman a dog. How low? How low will Jesus take this woman? He says to her, you're not a member of my family. You're not one of those people I came to bless. There's no place for you at this table. There's no place for you at my table, Jesus, in essence, says. Why? Because this table's for the children. This table is for the Jewish people. You're not one of them. It's hard to read that, isn't it? It's hard to read that because it certainly seems like an insult. So that is Jesus, my friends. That is the action of Jesus in this story. Let's turn now to this woman because the story gets even more astounding as we continue. Because each time Jesus acts, the woman responds. And that's why, my friends, I said that in my understanding of the story, with one hand, Jesus rebuffs her. With one hand, he ignores her and turns her away. But with his secret, sovereign, irresistible hand, my friends, he pulls her in. So look at this with me. Jesus ignores. That was Jesus' first thing that he did. What does the woman do? She presses forward. She chases after him. Jesus turns his back upon her, but she runs after him. And I believe that she was literally and physically running to catch up to Jesus. What drove her to run like that? Faith. God, has, God was working. Jesus was drawing. Faith was already born in this woman's heart. And it pushes her forward. Jesus ignores. The woman presses forward. The second thing Jesus does is he announces his mission, at least what, she, what he does to this woman. He announces his mission. He tells this woman, I did not come for you. I came for others. And the woman agrees. She does not object. She does not seek to argue with him. She agrees. She just falls at his feet and says, Lord, help me. Jesus says, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the woman falls at his feet. Lord, help me. In the third place, my friends, Jesus excludes. Right? He said, it's not fitting. It's not good to take the bread, which is meant for the children, and to throw it to the dogs. Jesus excludes. The woman counters. The woman says, in essence, dear congregation, Jesus, you are the Messiah of Israel. You've come with blessings for your people. You've spread a table for your people. And what kind of table, my friends, will Jesus spread for his people? Will there be just a few crumbs of bread on that table? No. 
Jesus will spread a feast, a wonderful feast, overflowing with good things. And now the woman's faith presses her advantage. And she says, Lord, is it not possible that some of those pieces of food that the children are eating won't accidentally fall to the ground? And cannot such a dog as I am at least have some of those crumbs? So low does this woman come, my friends. So low does this woman come as the Spirit of God works in her, as Jesus draws her to himself. So low does she come that she says, Lord, I'll take my place on the floor. I'll take my place on the floor, not at the table. I know there's no place for me at that table. But I'll take my place on the floor with the dogs. And why, if the children in their eating might happen to drop something, why then, Lord, could I just have that crumb? Doesn't that happen, Jesus, that the children carelessly drop food? Now that is remarkable, isn't it, my friends? How low this woman is willing to come. Jesus excludes. The woman counters. The woman counters with this self-abasing, this self-humiliating comment. Lord, I'll take my place on the floor with the dogs. And now, my friends, something happens. Jesus is conquered. You know, the more I thought about this story, the more I see a direct parallel between what we read in this story and what we preached some time ago on Jacob. When God put his hip out of joint and rendered him helpless. Because Jacob prevailed with God. He overcame, he conquered God with his faith. And now this woman does likewise. And in the face of a Jesus with his hand stretched out, there's nothing here for you. Her faith takes hold of, of everything that she can take hold of, which is nothing in herself. She abandons all claim on Jesus' mercy. And she says, I'll take my place with the dogs on the floor. And the overflowing blessing and bounty that you bring for your children, why, when some of those crumbs will fall to the table, that's all I need. Could there not just be one of those things for me, Jesus, that of the overflowing bounty of the table that you spread, some of it might spill over and fall to the floor, and me, just a Gentile dog, could scoop it up and be blessed. And Jesus is conquered. Jesus is overcome. And that's why he says, my friends, great. Your faith is great. Your faith is great. And then the reward of faith. The reward of faith is those words in verse 28. Be it done for you as you wish. Not just the healing of your daughter. But the overflowing blessings of God will overflow to you and to your family and the forgiveness of sins and all the blessings of salvation that I promised the Jewish people, why they overflow to you now as well. Can you imagine, my friends, those disciples standing there looking at this scene, pondering and reflecting upon this? I wonder, my friends, if this story didn't come back to Peter as he stood on the house of Cornelius and as God said to Peter, 
Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed? Is not this, my friends, a lost sheep, not of the house of Israel, but of the house of God's spiritual Israel, a lost sheep? And now Jesus is conquered. This woman's faith conquers Jesus, and now Jesus gives her everything that she asked for and much more beside. My friends, I ask the question this evening, why does Jesus say this is such great faith? Jesus had many times seen faith, but why here does he say this is great faith? I think, my friends, the reason must be because of this woman's willingness to give up any claim that she has on the saving, on the benefits, the blessings of Jesus. She has no rights to claim. She has no, she has no claim to make on the mercy of Jesus. She has nothing that she can lay on the table and say, Lord, here's a reason why you should give me what I'm asking. And the thing is, my friends, she owns that. Every negative thing that Jesus says about her, she accepts. Even when Jesus says, I can't give the children, the bread of the children to the dogs. Even that, in, in one sense, that's the most amazing thing of this whole story, is, when, in, is in verse uh, 27, after Jesus says, I can't take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. And she says, yes. She says, yes, Lord. She, she, she owns everything that Jesus says about her. She accepts that. And out of that sense of need and laying and casting aside any claim on God's mercy, the faith springs up bright and strong and takes hold of Christ. Why, my friends? Now she has nothing else to hold on to except the mercy of God in Christ. All she can do is reach out an empty hand. She has nothing, no claim to make. Now, she does have an argument. Again, that argument she made is that, Jesus, you're a great Savior. You're a great King. Certainly something of the blessing that you put on the table for the children, something of that might fall to the ground, and I could have that. But that's the only argument she makes. In every respect, my friends, she owns that she is nothing. And that is the greatness of her faith. That is the greatness. That is what makes her faith great. She became nothing in order that Christ could be everything. My friends, the first application then is what does it mean to go back to the catechism? What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? You know, if you have a pen and you want to circle something, in the answer of the catechism, you can circle just those three words, in this way. Right? It says it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ, and in this way. You see that there? And in this way. In a sense, this whole sermon is, is focused on those three words. And in this way. This is how we receive the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. In a coming Sunday, my friends, the announcement, the announcement will be made. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in the coming Lord's Day. 
And that day will come. And the pastor will, will come. He'll come down to that table. He'll take that bread. He'll break it. He'll take that wine and he'll pour it out. And then he'll say, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And what will you say, my friends? How will you respond? You see, my friends, the way that many of us respond is we bring our credentials. That's why I put that word credentials there. We bring our credentials. What, what's your credential tonight, my friends? Why should you sit at God's table and partake of those blessings? Well, I'm a member of this church. Well, I've been a deacon for many years, or I've served as an elder. I'm the pastor of the church. Perhaps you could say as a credential, why, I've been to the Lord's Supper many times in the past. You see, tonight, my friends, in this story, God cuts that all away. In a sense, my friends, God even cuts away the fact that you could stand and say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a converted man. I'm a converted woman. Maybe you even had a very powerful conversion experience that you can speak of. But even that tonight, my friends, God strips that away. He cuts that all off. He takes away every credential that you might have. And he says, are there any dogs in the church this morning? He says, is there anyone willing here to say that I have nothing to offer to the Lord? I have nothing to say. I've only got sin and guilt to set before the Lord. I have no reason at all why God should bless me. My friends, was there ever a time in your life when the Spirit of God sat home to your own heart and soul that there is no reason or no obligation that God is under to save you and that God would do no injustice if he cast you from his presence forever and ever? That's where the Lord's Supper brings us every time again, my friends. That's why the Lord's Supper is such a vivid and powerful experiential thing for the people of God. Because we stand before God every time the preacher stands there. Every time he lifts up that bread. Every time he lifts up that wine. It brings us all to the same place, including the preacher. It brings us all to the same place as condemned criminals with a rope around our neck and owning the fact that God could cut us off from his presence justly. That's where we stand. Elders, deacons, no matter how long you've been a member of this church, the youngest child, my friends, it also means that no matter what sin you may have committed in your life, whatever the devil wants to bring up in your conscience, that you've done this, what makes you possibly think you can sit at the Lord's table when you've done this, the holiest saint, the most wretched sinner, we all stand on the same ground before God in that hour, my friends, in that sacred hour, when the bread is lifted up, when the wine is poured out, and God now comes in his mercy, and he says, who will sit at my table? He pulls out that chair, but my friends, not for proud Pharisees, not for those who say, well, 
I attend church morning and evening, and I've been doing that for years. Whatever credential you bring, no, my friends, if you have a credential tonight, then there's no place for you at that table because there's only dogs allowed at this table. You know, I thought about that when I was making this sermon. I thought, well, the guy in the front of the table, he seems to have a credential that he's the preacher. No, my friends. What about the people on the other side of the table? No, not for them either. My friends, the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper are those under the table. That's what the story brings us. That's the place where it brings us tonight. That when we think of God's overture to us, of spreading that table, and when we think of coming forward and taking our place at the table of the Lord, that we can only do it on the grounds, my friends, that I am a lost sinner with nothing to say to the Lord, with no claim to make, except that he's a merciful God and that he's called me to come. Isn't that what we sang? Such a beautiful hymn, my friends. Just as I am, without one plea. That Canaanite Roman could have wrote this song. She certainly would have sung it. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. My friends, that's, why, that's what makes the Lord's Supper such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I asked you last week, Are you willing to be saved on these terms? Without any plea, without any reason why God should save you, are you willing to be saved on these terms? Now, my friends, if you're a Christian this evening, you want to know what you have to answer? You could say, Pastor, I can't be saved on any other terms. If the Spirit of God has taught you who you are in yourself, my friends, then you'll say tonight, if the terms were anything else, then I'm lost forever. But if the terms are tonight that God will take my sin and guilt and punish it in his son, Jesus Christ, why then, maybe there's a place for me at that table. Oh, what a wonder and what a mercy it is, my friends, that these are the terms. Because those who've been taught by the Spirit of God know that if God required just one scintilla, one thing for me to do, then I'm lost forever. You know, there's the story... Hendrik de Cook was the founder of the, or the first man to secede from the churches in the Netherlands in 1834. But when he first became a pastor, he was a very liberal man, graduated from the liberal theological school of the time. And he went to the church, a very learned, very scholarly man, but he wasn't converted. He wasn't even a Christian. I, I guess he was a Christian in name, but he never knew the things that we're speaking of this evening. And he went to see this man, I can't think of his name now, but he has a name and he goes down in history. I can't think of it. At any rate, he went to see this man. And in the course of the conversation, this man said, Pastor, if I had to add one sigh to my salvation, I was lost forever. My friends, do you understand that language this evening? That if you had to add just one thing, if the terms of God saving you required you just to sigh, If that's all you had to do, if God said, just do that, and I'll reach out my hand and save you. This man had learned in the school of the Holy Spirit that if that's what God required of him, he was lost forever. And this Canaanite woman learned it as well. And all the people of God will learn it in the school of the Spirit, that they have nothing they can add. They have nothing they can bring. 
And so the terms of salvation in the new covenant, my friends, well, it's the glory of the gospel that God says, just come in faith with an empty hand, with no claim and no plea, and receive salvation as a free gift. Another story, my friends, and then I close. There's a preacher in Grand Rapids who I heard one time say there are so many parks in Grand Rapids, no doubt there are some of them here in Kalamazoo as well, that say, no dogs allowed. My friends, at this table, only dogs allowed. I pray, my friends, that you and me together would learn that lesson and that we would be reminded of it every time that call goes forth. Come, celebrate the Supper of the Lord. May God bring us to that place. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonder it is. The terms of the new covenant. Lord, we never can, can rejoice enough in this glorious truth. That you don't say to us, do this. Or come up to this standard. Measure up to this expectation. No, you just ask us to come. And to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Your mercy, O Lord, in Jesus Christ. Lord, we learn that lesson from this Canaanite woman. She was under a curse. She had no place at the table. But, oh, God, give us the same spirit that she had. Lord, I'll take my place on the floor with the dogs. And out of the abundance of the blessings that you bring for your people, why, if just but a crumb could fall, I could take it and receive all that I need. But, Lord, you don't give us crumbs. You give us a feast. And we don't deserve it. We confess it. We own it this evening. Lord, please teach us this lesson again and again and again. How glad we are that the Lord's Supper recurs on a regular basis in our church so that we can be reminded of this lesson again. Lord, speak to us and continue to speak to us and move amongst us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray only. Amen. Let's turn now in the blue hymnal to number 430. Where we sing the song of the publican, Lord at thy cross, in verse 4, we sing, Here at thy cross I still would wait, nor from its shelter flee, till thou, O God, in mercy great, art merciful to me. I also announce, uh, dear congregation, that we have a new doxology again this evening. Uh, you'll see that it's the Red Hymnal 150, version B, verse 1. Just be aware of that, so that will be a different song for us. But now we'll sing the four verses of 430, and then the doxology.
go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.